0: The more things change, the more they stay the same. Welcome to the first 2022 edition of the Third Friday's podcast. I am your host, as always, Christian Cison, and I typically have a guest to help me out with some burgeoning case law or some update from the Workers' Compensation Board in New York, but I thought it would be best to actually do this one solo and look back on our 2021, and look forward to 2022. What's our headline going to be at the end of this year? And I think that is a demonstration of how we look back and use that to uh, accentuate our progress into 2022, what has happened in the last year, and uh, how does that make us move forward in a meaningful way. So. I look back at my attendance at this year's annual meeting of the New York Self-Insurers Association uh, in Manhattan this year, and one of the presentations uh, discussed new legislation before uh, the New York uh, State in, uh, Legislature in Albany. And a lot of times these are bills that are not necessarily going to be approved. Uh, sometimes I think of lobbyists trying to please a certain faction or a union because some of these uh, new statutes that are being proposed are so outlandish, and you know, we think of workers' compensation being ultimately unfair to employers, uh, but we'll go through some of them and see how unfair uh, the next level really is going to be. Um, looking at them, it actually accentuates our current process and how we think we can best defend from day one. Because, as I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It really just justifies how we go about handling a New York workers' compensation claim today and Everything that the board tries to change, or a claimant's attorney, or a judge, or a board panel, or even the appellate division, most of the time, it actually just justifies our way of defense. So let's get into it. One of the things that uh, um, a new bill is looking for is the, the definition of temporary total disability and permanent total disability. So let's start with temporary because that's most often seen, and the bill being proposed is to redefine temporary total disability to include an employee's inability to perform his or her pre-injury employment duties or any modified employment offered by the employer. This is a very, very stark difference from how we currently define temporary total disability. We truly believe that a temporary total disability is defined as an injured worker's inability to do any type of work. So even though an accident may prevent them from doing their pre-accident job, the ability of the claimant to do a sedentary or a light-duty position does not mean that they are entitled to do... um, Are they're entitled to receive awards at the total rate. And the reason why this is problematic has to do with a numbers game. The statutory maximum rate, of course, is going to be higher, but it's always going to be capped at two-thirds of the employee's average weekly wage. And if that's going to be an issue... What we usually do is lower the rate so that the discrepancy or the difference between the actual compensation rate and the claimant's average weekly wage is stark enough that the employee realizes it's in his or her best own interest to return to work and make the pre-accident wage. Having a claimant out on temporary total disability is an award that's tax-free, and so if we keep them on that path, they're less likely to return to work, and the longer they stay out of work, the more likely it is that they never come back. So, to redefine temporary total disability as an inability to do the pre accident job, or even an inability to do any modified duties, is so stark in difference compared to what we're doing now that an employer is actually prevented or discouraged from offering modified duty. If the employer has modified duty, an extensive program where employees can do uh, different jobs that still help them earn a living, does that mean that the insurance company would have to pay awards at the total rate leading the employee to stay out of work longer than he or she really should? This is the example of the type of bill that is up for debate uh, with the New York legislature. And a lot of times these bills get shot down because we are talking about a massive, massive change to the way things are. And I can have a debate with a claimant's attorney or a judge to determine the merits of this, but... If you're truly temporary totally disabled, you are compensated as such. If you fall off the scaffold as a construction worker, uh, if you lose a limb uh, due to a serious accident, um, those are the types of awards that prevent you from doing any type of gainful employment temporarily. And it doesn't make sense to then distribute that to injured workers who cannot do their pre-accident position It is actually a detriment to the process as a whole. But speaking of permanent total disability, that's our second example, where the bill pending legislation will redefine permanent total disability to include an inability to perform the full range of sedentary work or approval for federal Social Security disability benefits as a result of the compensable accident or occupational disease. Let's think about how ludicrous that really is. Total has this attribution or this uh, significance of full, of all the way to the end, of 100%. When you say permanent total disability there are many people outside of our industry that can define it as being unable to work in any position for the rest of one's life. That's permanent. But if that's now going to be including an inability to do sedentary work, we're talking about a desk job where there are frequent breaks, uh that uh, there's an ability or a duty to you know, maybe use the phone uh complete forms no manual labor no lifting carrying pushing pulling so on and so forth it's hard pressed to find those types of claimants even in those even those who have a serious orthopedic or physical disability have probably been living their life with other people in social circles, using the phone, completing forms in their own personal lives. And to say that a sedentary position as as an inclusion into the permanent total disability definition, definition is a real problem because not so much that we can't prove that they can, because most of the time they can, But it's going to encourage claimants to avoid doing that. The message that we're sending as a state to claimants to say that you just have to prove that you can't pick up a phone is very, very odd. It's not something that I would endorse, even if I were on the dark side as a claimant's attorney. And I think that it presents problems for how claims are defended. From day one. So we go from disability to two other bills that caught my attention. Uh, They're not related to the disability spectrum, so I wanted to touch on temporary and permanent first, but the next one relates to COVID 19. And, you know, I guess it depends on how you uh, perceive this current pandemic. And what we're what we're certainly doing, or if there's even a pandemic at all, but as we sit here in the first month of 2022, uh, I think we can safely say that even as an industry, uh, we've made good progress in fighting the strictures that the, the restrictions that the board has given us. The idea that a prevalence standard that isn't codified in law or articulated by the higher courts, uh, is nothing short of ridiculous. Uh, I understand that there's a public policy to want to protect our injured workers from COVID-19, but I think the board uh, has always been premature in articulating a standard that isn't codified. Uh, Emergency regulations aside, COVID-19 has become a problem for employers across the state because a standard that isn't a standard only helps the person who files the claim. A standard is designed so that one can meet it, and it creates objective criteria for an employer to compensate its employee. But prevalence, the very meaning of that word, is not a standard. It allows for discretion and a subjective interpretation of what an employer's circumstances really are again, not codified by statute. We've been very, very uniform in our denial recommendations for these claims. Not so much because we believe we're going to win at the board panel, because we know the board panel is going to issue that prevalence standard, but, would, but because we want to take our talents, so to speak, to the appellate division and show the state's law interpreters that the Workers' Compensation Board as an administrative agency has overstepped its bounds, right? So when I say the the more things change, the more things stay the same, I'm going to outline this new proposal for a COVID statute, but it really only justifies how we're doing our process as the correct way to defend a COVID-19 claim. So the pending legislation will add an occupational disease for COVID-19 for any work that causes workers to be in contact with the public, patients, inmates, residents, parolees, clients, students, customers, diners, persons in custody of state, and oh wait, just in case you thought that wasn't a catch-all for everybody, any work that could expose workers to COVID-19. And before we get into my analysis of the statute and what it means, the text of that is exactly why these types of bills uh, sometimes fail before the legislature. Because you're basically saying COVID-19 is a compensable occupational disease for any work that could expose a worker to COVID-19. So you could be an employer that has the highest level of safety standards in your workplace. Have an employee unknowingly bring COVID-19 into the workplace due to a variety of sources. And the idea that it could could expose another employee to COVID 19 would mean that an occupational disease would establish compensability for that employee who files against you. So, that again, like it's trying to make a standard out of nothing, but I'm actually excited for the fact that this bill has been proposed. Not for the obvious reasons, because I think that if codified, it will make absolutely no sense. Uh, Anybody that has had COVID-19 should just blame their employer. But the reason I like this bill is because it's actual evidence that the Workers' Compensation Board acted prematurely. Because the way that this type of law comes into being is this proposal for legislation. There is a way for new types of law to be applied by the Workers' Compensation Board. It's right here. Instead, the Board went ahead, pushed through by avoiding all of the Tenets of an occupational exposure claim or even a traumatic accident claim added prevalence as a reason to dictate that more claims should be compensable and failed in the last two years to actually get something like this passed by the New York legislature. So for our clients that have authorized us to appeal to the Appellate Division of the State of New York 3rd Department, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for us because this is that idea, that public policy uh, dicta you put in a brief to say, hey, wait a minute. Even though we know the standard makes no sense when you compare it to Affirmed case law on occupational diseases and traumatic accident that result in similar exposures, inhalations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, isn't the idea or the proposal of a bill, evidence that the board acted prematurely in outlining a standard without doing, going through this process? So for almost two years. The cowboys and cowgirls at the Workers' Compensation Board have added something without going through the proper process. And as an attorney, uh, a defense attorney, procedural arguments are our best friend. I'm not arguing that an IME is more credible than a claimant's doctor on why COVID-19 is related to employment. I'm arguing that there's no procedural basis or jurisdiction or even due process that permits the compensability of these types of claims. So I'm excited for uh, the outcome of those appeals. And finally, I'll end on a what I believe is a, uh, a more true pandemic, or I guess we'll call it an epidemic, because it's been going for a long time. It's on opioids. Now, one thing I do have to say about the workers compensation board is that they have made some good steps in the last few years with respect to opioids now it's hard for them to pat hard for me to pat them on the back too much given that it's been a nationwide maybe even a global crisis when people overdose on medication that they don't need but at least it's something they've added an option to an RFA2 that allows for more efficient litigation I have had experiences with law judges and board panels that take procedural arguments into account with respect to opioids. And credibility is hard to win on by a claimant's attorney or a claimant's doctor because they'd be saying that the claimant needs excessive or really strong painkillers for mechanisms of accident for older surgeries that, you know, don't apply anymore. And from the defense perspective, not only are we actually helping the claimant become more healthy long-term, the costs of these opioids are a real problem. So as we move forward, this bill proposes to take us a step back But Again, I'll repeat that phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same, because if I look at this bill and it says that it adds a presumption that death due to opioid overdose is compensable where the opioids were prescribed as a result of the workplace injury. Again, we have a real problem because the prescription of opioids does not even confirm... That a claimant takes them. I've never been prescribed anything higher than uh, you know, a few days or weeks of some painkillers after my wisdom teeth were taken out. But surely, we all know of situations where we are prescribed something, but we don't actually take it to codify causally-related death, which is something so serious in our industry, based on the prescription of opioids in a traumatic accident or an occupational disease claim, is insane. Just because they were prescribed. Now, the reason why stay the same as they change is because our practice in defending opioid, defending opioid use is very robust. All it takes is a laundry list of medications from a claimant's attorney. I'm sorry, a claimant's doctor. Sometimes I get them confused with all the uh, referrals they send back to each other that make you think, why is a claimant taking Tramadol? Percocet oxycodone for a slip and fall that hurt an ankle. We want to dispute those bills by obtaining records reviews, right? Not, not even physical IMEs. Records reviews from notable pain management physicians that are well versed in the non-acute pain medical treatment guidelines and can actually give an opinion that's hard to refute. Think about your normal IME report that says, this claimant has a 10-pound lifting restriction. Well, unless you're actually testing that, it's a little bit easier to refute or at least throw some uh, discredit discreditation on it by saying he's got a 20-pound lifting restriction or a zero. But to say that a claimant does not need morphine equivalent dosages higher than 100 it's going to be hard for that opposing doctor the treating physician to testify under oath that the claimant truly needs this medication for one they're not monitoring how often the medication is being taken they're not necessarily the ones refilling the prescriptions they're not necessarily the ones who are recommending continuation. And the cost of them, it actually drives the continuation. We've all heard of the stories of kickbacks and sales reps. It's in TV. It's in movies now. To take this step and say that if you are prescribed an opioid during a compensable workers' compensation claim, and making that a causally related death claim if the person overdoses, again, puts no ability of the employer to fight. Because if we look at these bills as a whole, if all four of them were to be passed, why even employ anybody anymore? It would make no sense to invest in an employee if they can get COVID-19 off the street, blame you for it. It makes no sense to have an extensive light duty program to keep a person gainfully employed, earning money, if you have to pay temporary total disability just because... They can't do the pre-accident position. And it would make no sense to even want to pay for prescription medication, even in cases where you believe that it might be the responsible thing to do, if there's a risk that the prescription of that opioid could lead to an overdose and make you responsible for a death claim. So when we look back at 2021, we, we, we see our firm being a, a real leader in the industry at litigating partial disability. And I know for my uh, self-insured clients, bringing them back to work through the use of labor market attachment has been a very big success story. Once the board finally got to its senses after the state of emergency was lifted, permitting this defense to be raised. We've been a leader in defending COVID-19 claims, arguing against compensability with several appeals ready before the appell division. And we've been a leader in litigating the overbroad and unnecessary use of opioids in accordance with a global crisis. And when we look at these four bills, which are a sample size of Uh, you know, more handfuls of of bills that are before the legislature. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Keep at it. We thank you for a great 2021, and we look forward to an even better 2022. This is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.